So Hebrews 6 is concerned with apostasy. And a reasonable question is, why? (laughs) Why is the author going to write about this at all? And we need to remember the purpose of the book of Hebrews, that the author is showing the audience Christ as the superior way, not just as an academic endeavor, but to actually encourage them not to go back to Judaism as they consider returning to the previous faith, which was easier because it was more culturally acceptable. Um, he is encouraging them to stay strong in the faith. And once the better way has been revealed, the way of Jesus Christ, they cannot go back to the old way. Because if they do so, they're not making an inconsequential choice. They are abandoning the gospel. It's not like uh, Judaism saved. And once the gospel came, even though the gospel of Jesus was better, you had a choice of which one. And you're just choosing a slightly less prosperous way. Um, To do so is to abandon the gospel. All of Judaism was pointing to Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah. And so if you turn your back on Christ, you abandon the gospel. And that's why Hebrews is filled with these warnings. Hebrews 2.1, which we covered. We must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. Hebrews 4.1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Hebrews 10.26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Hebrews 10.36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he has promised. Hebrews 12.25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we who refuse him who warns us from heaven? So the book of Hebrews is filled with these warnings. Do not fall away. Do not turn back. And now in Hebrews 6, we get this concept of those who do. What about those who do turn back? What are they? How do we reconcile what they do with what God says about his salvation? So what is an apostate? And I think we have to first start just for clarity with what an apostate is not. So you think about when somebody uses the word apostate, what the way they use that word sometimes is not really accurate or helpful. A non-Christian is not an apostate. Somebody who doesn't believe, who never believed, who wasn't a part of the church, that's not an apostate. That's an unbeliever. That's a pagan. That's not an apostate. A Christian who has committed a serious sin You know what the Bible calls that person? A Christian. A Christian who commits sin is still a Christian, no matter how serious that sin is. So you don't look at a Christian who then does some horrible thing uh, and say that he apostatized. Um, uh, A Christian who is struggling with a particular sin. So you say, well, that person says they're a Christian, but I know them and I've talked to them and they're still battling with this uh, alcoholism and drunkenness, or they're still battling with pornography, or they're battling with this sin. And if they were really a Christian, they wouldn't struggle with it. And so they're an apostate. Nope, doesn't work that way. Uh, Exhibit A for me is David. David was not a one-time screw-up kind of guy. David was life-filled with screw-up 
kind of guy. David was sin upon sin upon sin, stumbling. David did lots of amazing things for God. Uh, David's words of confession are some of the most beautiful and helpful to us in all of the Psalms. But remember, he's confessing because he sinned, because he committed great and grievous sins. Um, so scripture never indicates that David is an apostate, that David renounced his faith by sinning. Um, so that's not what an apostate is. An apostate is a person who has, for every visible reason, appeared to have been a believer and later turns away from God. So everything we can see, everything that's visible, they committed their life to God. They made a public profession of faith. They received the sacraments. They read their Bible or walked with God for a time. A person who does those things, who with everything we can see, appears to be a Christian and then later turns away from God, not only with sin, but blasphemes God, abandons God, hates God, however you want to say it, it is a radical falling away. It is a renouncement in word and deed of the faith they previously claimed to have. So if that is the case, what do we say about their salvation? Can salvation be lost? Well, there's a lot of scripture that forces us to answer no. Salvation, which is a gift of God. So if you believe that salvation is a work of man, then it's pretty easy to believe that salvation can be lost because everything I have done in my life, I have also demonstrated I'm capable of screwing it up. I'm capable of messing it up. I'm capable of not finishing lots of things that I start. And so if salvation is something that I start and something that I keep going, it's totally believable that I could lose my salvation. The problem is that's not the way scripture speaks of salvation at all. Scripture speaks of salvation as a work of God, not of man, as a gift from God. Faith is a gift. This was done for me. And it even says in Ephesians, so that I would not boast. If I did it myself, I would be praiseworthy because I would have done something pretty remarkable in saving myself. And scripture said, God wants the glory for salvation. God is the only one who can save. And so God does save. It talks about Christ having us, his people in his hand and never, never could one be plucked out of the hand of God. It talks about God choosing. How does God unchoose one that he has chosen? It talks about God seeking you out for salvation. Not that you came running to God with arms wide open. Please, please, God save me. But you're running away from God, cursing God while we were yet enemies. God saved us. So God does this seeking. He does this saving. He's the one who calls us and who gives us faith so that we can turn to him and say, yes, save me. Why would God then, with all of the language that scripture uses to describe that, take that away? Unchoose us. Put us back. And it would be easy for us to say, well, because of sin. But is that really what you want to say? Because it's not what scripture says. Because <laughs> if that's really the answer, then none of us is, will endure. None of us will persevere. If there's a moment where God has a, a bucket and he says, when you fill up this bucket with sin, even though I chose you and I gave you faith and I saved you, I'm going to dump you out because there's just too much sin in this bucket. We're all doomed. And again, scripture doesn't speak that way. It's not just logic. It's not the way that scripture speaks. So the question of can someone lose their salvation? Scripture's answer is a resounding no. You cannot lose salvation. 
But Hebrews 6 answers a different question. Can someone appear to lose their salvation? And to this, Hebrews 6 says, yes. Not because they actually lost their salvation, but because there are people who appear to be believers who are not. There are people who are in the covenant community who even appear to bear fruit for a period of time, but later turn out to be unbelievers. Think about last week's discussion, the visible and the invisible church. There are people who will take vows in a church. They will make a profession of faith. They will say the Apostles' Creed. They will say, this is what I believe. They may, uh, for a time in their life, could be a long time in their life, they may read the scriptures. They may pray. They may do all of the things that accompany faith, all of the external signs that usually belong to someone who actually has faith. But they could do all of that without ever actually having faith, without actually having been converted in the first place. So the question shouldn't be, can someone appear to lose their salvation? But can someone who isn't saved appear to be saved? And to that, I think we could all say yes. We all think that it's possible to fake it. We all think that it's possible to go through the motions of religion, even for, humanly speaking, noble reasons. I think this is good for my children, or I like the order and stability in life, or um, a friend of mine who just, he believes that there's a higher power in this world, and we owe some sort of reverence and duty to the higher power, and it doesn't really matter which one it is. You just got to show that in your heart, you're willing to submit to a higher power, and that person could theoretically join a Christian church and take some vows. And I mean, many of the liberal churches have done this where the vows don't change. They just redefine the meaning of all the words and they strip it of all of its meaning. Um, so it absolutely is the case that someone who isn't saved can appear to be. Can you guys think of a parable of Jesus's that relates to this issue at all? Is there... There is one of Jesus's parables that speaks clearly to this. Can you think of what it is? Oh, that's a good, um, like one person example. Yeah. But the, the broader example is the parable of the sower and the seeds. Yeah. Think about what Jesus says about casting the seeds and the different types of ground. In our mind... That parable would just have two categories, seeds that don't grow and seeds that do grow. But how many categories do Jesus's have? Three, four, five, right? Four, more than two. <laughs> See our precision there, right? But you have the seeds that fall, don't take any root. Right? Those are easy for us. Those are people who hear the gospel and reject it. They want nothing to do with it. They don't believe it. And so there's no growth. There's nothing. But there's also some that hear it and that receive it with gladness and that sprout for a little while. He talks about them growing quickly. And then what happens? They die. They gave the appearance of being alive. They gave the appearance of being rooted in the word. And yet they didn't. And then there are others who will have good soil, who will grow, and who will bear fruit, and who will persevere to the end. So um, there are those who bear fruit, and there are those who don't. Those are the two ultimate categories. But there's some categories in between. And this is part of separating the wheat from the tares. Um, and I think it's very important for us, and we'll talk about this more as we go along, but I want to make sure we don't lose it. We don't know the answer. 
when we look at an individual, we have the responsibility of giving the the individual the benefit of the doubt, and um, the church has the responsibility of giving them the benefit of the doubt and of um, admonishing, teaching, rebuking, correcting them so that their behavior is consistent with their profession. So as individual Christians, uh, we look at people, and when people profess Christ, we take them at their word. Okay, they profess Christ. So then, help me understand how this behavior is okay with you. Because I, I'm struggling to match your behavior with your confession. That's a question. That's that's a question, not an accusation. That's um, observing. Uh, Jesus, you know, people love to quote uh, in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew five and six. And uh, what's the culture's favorite line that Jesus ever said? Judge not, lest you be judged. And then what does Jesus say? A couple paragraphs after that, uh, judge by fruit. Judge a teacher by the fruit of what they teach. Judge people by the fruit that they produce in their lives. So there's that uh, uh, Christian expression about being fruit inspectors, right? Where we do, we want to look at one another and we want to see fruit. We want to see good works. And if we don't, we, with love and compassion, acknowledging the log in our eyes before we address the speck in theirs, ask questions about how behavior is consistent with profession. Uh, And that's how we help one another to persevere in the faith and in righteousness. But ultimately, no matter what we do, no matter how much of that we do or how good at that we are, because we do it the way the Bible teaches us to, um, only God knows what a person ultimately believes and whether or not a person ultimately has faith. I think it's important for us to, especially what we're doing here at Covenant of Grace, there's four categories in the, the sower. And the second category is the one that falls on the rock, and it springs up because there's a little soil on the rock, but it ultimately the roots can't go down deep and they wither and die. The third category, I think, was it grows well, it grows up, and the weeds and the it's overtaken by, by the world. By yeah. the world. Um, why? Why what we're doing here is important. We think that you can go to a church that gives you this much depth. And your roots are going to go down about this much. And since we can't know when someone is regenerated and, and, and what happens when your roots are this deep, you may never get to that point of regeneration. You may never get to that point of real saving faith. And that's why it's so dangerous. And that's why we believe in what we're doing here. And then you have the other category of the world taking over, which we're, we're seeing a lot now of people who were reformed believers in churches we probably all would have attended who are falling away from the faith because they committed adultery and their wife divorced them. Or, I mean, you name it, something has happened and they say, I can't love a God like that because of the situation that I'm in. I'll talk about it in the sermon today, too. This is, if Christianity is the uh, interdependence of the head, the heart, and the hands. And when you put the heart first, as many do, feelings first religion, our feelings of those three are the most susceptible to our environment. So as our circumstances change, as really terrible stuff happens to us or to people we love, our feelings are going to feel the weight of that assault. And that's okay. That's as it should be. But if our feelings are primary in our religion, 
that assault wears us down and eventually we're left with nowhere to turn. Whereas if our head, what we know, what God says is the centerpiece of our religion that drive certain types of feelings in us that when those feelings are under assault by circumstances and we have to retrench, we have something to retrench to. So I can say what I did last week about our reading of the Psalms together, which is we don't have to feel happy in God all the time. We don't have to look at everything that's happening around us and pretend like some of it's not terrible. But when that happens, we don't turn to God. Well, we're allowed to be angry with God, but we don't, we don't renounce the faith. I can't serve a God like that. We retrench. What is it that I know to be true about God that is still true, even though this stuff is terrible? And that's why we've got to have the deeper roots. We've got to have the head first faith, not that ignores feelings, but that drives feelings, genuine love, genuine joy, genuine compassion and pity and empathy, and that drives our hands to do uh, good works. The particular example here in Hebrews 6, look at verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, what is that passage describing? All right, we got to look at the words here. And this is, uh, it's it's a great Sunday school for my sermon to be on what it's on because the sermon talks about there are things in scripture that are complicated that we have to study. And in the study of them and the learning of them, it enables us to love God more than we could have without that knowledge. Uh, As we gain more truth and increase knowledge, It's not just an intellectual endeavor. It is something that drives our heart toward love. And in a passage like this, where you think, boy, it's hard first glance to love a God who would let this happen. So let's work through it and see what we're doing here. Um, All right. First phrase is have been enlightened for those who have been enlightened. Now, this term, you don't care what it is in Greek. It refers to an intellectual understanding. It's a person who has grasped some understanding of spiritual truth. They know what the words in the Apostles' Creed mean. They know intellectually what the truth claims uh, are that we are saying. Can this term refer to salvation? No, not at all. This term is what's used at the beginning of John's Gospel when it says, the light of Christ shines on all men. The understanding of Christ shines on all men. Does the salvation of Christ shine on all men? No. Does the awareness of what God is and has done in the universe shine on men? Yes, that's consistent with Romans 1, that all are left without excuse because God has made clear in the things that he has made. Christ's revelation goes out to all men, but not all receive it in its fullness. Um, This word can... So all believers possess this type of understanding, but not all who possess this understanding are believers. Does that make sense? You have to have this. You have to know what the words of the Apostles' Creed mean to be a Christian. You've got to know what it is you're agreeing to and what your faith is directed toward. But just because you have this understanding, it does not mean you're a Christian. 
The second phrase, tasted the heavenly gift. So this person has been enlightened and this person has tasted the heavenly gift. And we think, oh, that has to be salvation. Salvation is the gift that this person is tasting. Nope. Uh, scripture refers to something in a way that's way more grand than we ever would. It refers to being a part of the covenant community, being a part of a church as tasting the heavenly gift. Think back to what I said that the role of the church is a few weeks ago, that it's a visible picture of an invisible reality. What is the invisible reality? Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God in its fullness is the invisible reality. That is our ultimate heavenly gift, is to be with God in the recreated world. So tasting the heavenly gift is what all of us do on Sunday. We get a glimpse, a glimmer, a mirror, a shadow, a reflection of that heavenly gift. As we are a part of the body of Christ, we are a part of the blessings of the heavenly community. So this includes the word, it includes the sacraments, it includes the prayers and the fellowship. This is the things that we get to do and see and have, the means of grace that are that reflection of the heavenly gift, the invisible reality, the word of God, the fellowship of believers, and the sacraments. So now we've got somebody who knows, and I'm just using the Apostles' Creed for shorthand, that's obviously not what the Bible's talking about, but who knows what the words of the Apostles' Creed mean, and we've got somebody who has tasted the heavenly gift, someone who has been a part of the covenant community, and particularly the covenant community in worship. What's the next phrase? Shared in the Holy Spirit. Partaker of the Holy Spirit. How does one become a partaker in the Holy Spirit? How does one share in the Holy Spirit? Well, have you ever listened to the invocation that I pray at the beginning of every single service of worship? This was in seminary. We had a uh, worship class where they taught all the elements of worship. And then we had to conduct multiple worship services with different people playing different roles so that we could practice the different responsibilities and understand what they are. And I will never forget uh, one service, my, one of my years, where uh, the guy's up there and he's kicking off the service and he prays the invocation and he gets ready to move on to the next thing and the professor holds up his hand and stops him. And he says, I, just uh, one comment, that was a stunningly beautiful prayer. It is obvious that you worked very hard on that. It is glorious. It uses the words of scripture. It was an amazing prayer. One small problem. You didn't invoke the deity. You see, the point of an invocation is to invoke the deity. It is to say, God, here we are. Come be with us. The whole purpose of the invitation, uh, invocation is to ask God, to invoke God, to come and bless and help and receive our worship. So you have been a partaker of the Holy Spirit every single time you've been in a worship service where there was an invocation. Every single time that the Holy Spirit has been asked to come and dwell with the covenant community and to equip us for what we're doing. And you could even say it's not so narrow as the invocation itself. The Holy Spirit is the fuel of the church. The Holy Spirit is what drives us in all the aspects of our ministry, even the fellowship that we have with one another. The Holy Spirit is what enables us to share wisdom with one another, to be compassionate with one another, to love one another. So if you have been part of the church, you have been a partaker of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of the people around you, 
even if the Holy Spirit is not working directly the work of salvation in you, you are a partaker of the Holy Spirit by being surrounded by people who are. And so it will have some effect on your own life. There's a trickle-down effect, even for those who don't believe. And this is why we, we say um, it's even those who don't believe being in the church uh, will be able to bear some measure of fruit by common grace because you're surrounded by people. There's social, there's a good kind of social pressure and the expectation that you will find ways to be kind, to be generous, to be thoughtful. Uh, and so that will, uh, that will happen even in those who do not believe. The next one should be easy for us. Tasted the goodness of the word of God. Have you heard preaching? Have you heard Bible teaching? Have you read scripture? Even if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as savior, scripture is good. And what it says to you and teaches you and shows you is good. And so when you hear it uh, preached and you sing it and you read it and you hear it taught, you're seeing the benefits. You're tasting the goodness of the word of God all around you. Then the next one is tougher, uh, I think, on an initial reading. Tasted the powers of the coming age. So tasted the goodness of the word of God and tasted the powers of the age to come, the ESV says. Now this can refer to miracles, signs and wonders that are done within the church, the apostolic signs and wonders that are witnessed by the person. Because remember, to the audience uh, here in Hebrews, it's such an early book that the miraculous, the miracle-filled, wonder-filled ministry of the apostles is still close at hand. It's still top of mind. There are still lots of people who saw these things. And so there are people in the covenant fold, in the visible church, the visible people of God, who would experience those miraculous things. Did Judas experience miraculous things? Did Judas taste the powers of the coming age? Absolutely. Um, and Jesus talks about this when he says, people will come to me on that day and say, Lord, didn't we do ministry in your name? Didn't we do these great things? So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, we see that some of these apostates won't just see and witness them, but some apostates will actually have done. Even Judas could cast out demons. Even Saul prophesy in the Old Testament. So this is a tricky one to understand, but the biblical testimony affirms it that uh, the signs and wonders that we bear witness to are a taste of the power of the coming age. But what does that look like for us? We don't see miracles, do we? I see miracles. Yes, we do. I see miracles we do. We, we don't... <laughs> we, and you think, if you're a member of a church over the course of your life, Aren't you going to see people miraculously change? Aren't you going to see horrible, indifferent husbands changed by the power of God? Aren't you going to see women battling with a particular sin that are given victory over that sin? Aren't you going to see people who don't believe come to faith? All of these are miracles and they are miracles worked by the power of God. And so they are, as we see them and experience them, a taste of the power of the coming age. So this is the problem. Apostates look a lot like believers. They look close, but they're not there. 
It's a person who is a part of the covenant community, but not a part of the kingdom of God. They're so near salvation physically, but they're not saved. They see, they hear, they see the fruit of redemption, but they do not taste it. They appear outwardly like a Christian, but that is all. Think about the apostates who died in the desert wanderings of Israel. Think about that generation we've talked about several times over the last few months who died out. They saw the Red Sea parted. They saw water come from rocks and manna come from heaven. They were freed from slavery in Egypt. They received all the benefits of being part of the visible covenant community. They partook in, experienced, benefited from all of the fruit of those who have faith and the power of God at work around them. But they ultimately rejected God. And so this is the type of person that the author of Hebrews has in mind. And that specific example, he'll call back to several times since he's talking to Jews that are thinking about going back to Judaism and saying, don't be like them. Those who hardened their hearts in the desert. This is exactly who Hebrews warns us of being like. And it's a, it's a plea as much as a warning. Do not be a partaker of the covenant community without partaking of the covenant. And so the point of the warning is not to suggest that you could lose your salvation. The point of this passage is not to cause those who believe to worry about their own security, to worry about where they stand with Christ. The warning is that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's that we would love God, that we would trust him for perseverance. And so it's this delicate balance uh, that uh, Paul touches on, James emphasizes, of maintaining a, a confident, resting hope in the work that God has already done as being everything we need for salvation. And if we want to feel and experience and humanly um, trust in that as real, that our faith would come alive in us, that we would study God so that we can learn more, so that we can love him more, that we would uh, fight against sin, that we would do good for others, that we would care about mortification, putting sin to death, and about sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, that our lives would be actually changed by this. And so it's not, um, Hebrews 6 is not to cause us to doubt the work that God has done in us. If anything, it, it allows us to look at our lives with self-reflection and to have more gratitude for what God has done in us. Wow, look at all the ways I still failed and continued to fail. I was not seeking after God, and yet here is what God did. I see so many people in a similar situation or a better situation than me who rejected God, who uh, did not receive him by faith, 
And yet God did this work in me. And now here is what God continues to work out in me. And so I walk forward in confidence and in hope with gratitude to God for his salvation and for what he's doing. So this is what it is to be an apostate. It's to be one who makes it to the desert, having been freed from slavery in Egypt, not spiritual slavery, physical, seen great works of God, received great blessings from the people of God, and yet does not trust in God by faith. And for those, it, of course it says they cannot be restored because there's nothing, there's no work you can do there's, there's no, there's no alternative means of salvation other than that God saves. And so if what we're saying about this person is God hasn't actually saved them, they've gone through these motions, they've gone through the appearance of religion and of faith, but God hasn't actually saved them, of course they can't be restored. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can add except faith, which is the gift of God that produces salvation. Question. Yes, about that passage. Does it mean, I mean, it says it's impossible for them to be restored. Does that mean, I mean, I'm thinking specifically about the small group of friends that I had in college, that is there no hope for them? Yeah, that's not, um, we're using restored in a finite sense. So what we think of, if I had a pen I could draw, we think of life as a timeline and Somebody was going up on the spectrum toward God if they demonstrated the works of all these things early in their life, and then they reject that, and so now they've plummeted, and they cannot be restored from that plummet, is what we would interpret this to mean, right? That's not what it says. Um, It's not that they can't be restored in the span of their life. It means that if they do not actually have the gift of faith from God, if God has not chosen them to be his own, there is nothing else they can do. There's no way that they make it back. So we make a big mistake if we look at people who were once part of the church and now renounce that and think, well, Hebrews 6 says they're done. They can never come back. That's not what it's saying at all. Does it mean there's nothing to restore them to? Because there, there, there was no, like, you can't right. restore them because... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, would you tell? Would you say there's a distinction or not between what we you know, say as an apostate and children that are raised in the church? They have all the benefits. They consider themselves Christians until they go out on their own and decide. Yeah. I, it, so tying those two questions together. So the answer is yes. Covenant children absolutely can become like those in the desert who had all the benefits of being part of the covenant community got all the advantages and yet did not have faith and ultimately turned away. So so that is a type of apostasy, is a covenant child who then turns away from that. But all the more so, connecting that to the previous question, we cannot look at a person's life as a straightforward up and down trajectory that never gets to change directions. So there are lots of people that in God's economy grow up in the church, depart from the church, and God in his timing and providence calls them back to the faith of their parents, back to the faith of their childhood later. And that's what parents whose children have walked away should be praying for every single day, is not... um, that God, that Hebrews 6 applies and know this child can never be restored. It's God, you can call them back to that. Because if they're God's elect, to Stephen's point, there is something to call them back to. And we would use 
would use the language of apostasy. We would say that child apostatized. In both instances, even though there's a potential for them to return. Yeah, we, we would, in the same way we would say, uh, if really push came to shove, I would say that you give the appearance of salvation. <laughs> because I do not have 100% certainty. So if it helps me for convenience of speech to say the child appears to have apostatized, he appears to have walked away from the faith, but I'm not making a permanent declaration about their end state. I'm describing a current condition while praying that God would but change that condition. You, you would to be accurate, but you wouldn't use the headline. That's right. It would be an exercise in precision at that point. But when we, yeah. And we would do what he does here, which is to say, don't be like those in the desert. Don't be like this. Come back. Well, you have to be pretty careful because, like you said, God only knows. God only knows, yeah. And it's, if they're chosen, they've just fallen away for a period of time, and they've come back. We would have to be careful about the judge. It's, the, it's this tension. We, we condemn no one. So we don't look at anyone and say, you are going to hell. And we judge by profession and by fruit. And so we can look at people and say... This is the path to death. You're on the path to death. I mean, that's the right kind of judging that Matthew 6 speaks about. Right, but we can't say that you're not going to be able to come back because we don't really know what God has chosen. That's right. We should never say to someone, if you come go down that path, there is no turning back. That is not... Except for if you die. Death on that path is bad. And that, that really is what our argument should be, because with most people who walk around, walk away from the faith, like college or something like that, humanly speaking, their biggest intellectual problem is they've got no sense of urgency. They don't genuinely believe they could die tomorrow or Jesus could come back the day after that. And so that's, a, even in the back of their minds, they think this stuff is important one day. You say, but what if it's important tomorrow? 